And welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet Podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright, and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. This is the second episode of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we'll be sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three babes of the stage, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Werthen, and British-Australian writer and actor Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Josephine Start and Lily McLeish. This episode, we will be listening to the play Swan Song by Bouchle Gaba. There is an ancient belief that swans burst into song with their final breath. Set in a tiny box flat in Johannesburg, Swan Song is a coming-of-age tale, tracing the journey of a young Setswana woman from Daong, born with a winged scapula, a symbol that mirrors a constant struggle for belonging, of home. After the play, we will be talking to writer Bushlegaba and special guest Naledi Majola. Swan Song by Bushlegaba. I'm not dying, just meant for flying. Fasciocapulohumeral muscular dystrophy. It may occur from either mother or father. It's best described as a genetic mutation, the result of a large part of DNA missing. My own biology has always made me uncomfortable with the idea of examining another person's, never a man's. This insecurity was born out of bath time at home. After putting ten kettles to boil on the stove, all the women at home made a ritual of pouring the scalding water into ten plastic basins laid out on the floor of the master bedroom. Then, all of us cousins would stand in order from eldest to youngest waiting our turn. In preparation for our baptism, we'd lay our garments to one side. So one afternoon, I'm standing next to my cousin, Tsolofelo, and I turn around for my teeny tiny batting boobs to face the wall. And as I pull off my Ward 7 Kosatu t-shirt, I hear Tsolo's, John Nawe! Sharp intake of breath. I tried to drag the shirt back down, but it was too late. The following week, I stood at the back of the queue under the guise of wanting to help Omama baby wash. What I wanted was to wash without being asked by my cousins to show them the pukazaka. See, as an adolescent, 
I didn't just experience the confusing surge of horniness that 12-year-olds go through or, or the search for clit within Kwaki. Nope. I was also handed the great pleasure of a rapidly growing winged scapula. basically just meant that my shoulder blades protruded a little further than everyone else's when I put pressure on my arms. I noticed restriction in movement for the first time when I couldn't reach Otatadi Trini's bookshelf anymore. Jo, kotau, how na lidi puka? Batuban baro omashwe, habahubaki, kore otokolo shi. I was the weirdo kid with very little to say. Except when I was alone in my father's cage. <laughs> Who was I going to talk to about how I like to pop strange words that I didn't understand into my mouth every now and then? Like, at 10 years old, ne? I discovered the word ABOMINATION at Muruti Mutashu Beans Salmon on a Sunday! <laughs> It's also there in chapter 2 of the Good News Bible. Of course, it also goes on to feature in chapters 5, 10, 18, 25, and 46, hand in hand with the themes of sin, abomination, sex, abomination, lust, abomination, death, abomination. <laughs> By the time I was 17, I had pretty much consumed almost every book available in Daum. I had also made up my mind. As soon as I got the chance, I was going to get myself as far away from that dust town as I could. Mang. Nah. Eh eh. I had no interest in flaffing a stoop all my life for marrying Muruti so and so son who's gone to Cape Town and done so well for himself. Nah. I gathered my shit and I left. I gotten a bursary to a university and of course I hadn't yet realized that a bursary would hardly cover tuition fees. Save for my grandmother, I shed tears for nothing other than the gold cage my father left. Not much is known about my father except that he disappeared as mysteriously as he appeared. Enter Romeo. With September's winds and a gold leaf cage for the magnificent bird, rumored to only roam the mountains of Mukareng. <laughs> Shem. My parents' love story plays itself out quite simply. Boy meets girl, him magician, and she trapeze artist. They lock eyes. Carabello. I love you. Gregoire, my Juliet. You can't talk to me that way. You might be my Romeo or you might not be. What do you mean? I love you. Carabello. Okay, baby. I just a wild affair ensues. He leaves her as soon as he's cured of his jungle fever, and I am the size of a pumpkin seed. Oh, oh, 
I don't love the cage for him. Maybe I just have a genetic affinity for cages. Anyway, there I was in the city of gold, drowning in the smoke, smells, and heights of buildings. I immediately befriended a group of liberal artists. Ugh, what's there not to love about flouncy shirts paired with theories on utopia topped with pretentious accents? Hearing those people speak about the grab for Africa and its implications was, well, shit, actually. That's the first time that I realized that there was this thing called poor, and even if you couldn't bottle it, it carries a pretty heavy stench. But I needed to keep my raft of social status on campus alive, so I scraped together some coins, bought myself a black turtleneck, and started walking around campus with a copy of Because I Write What I Like under my arm. What do you call a fly without wings? A walk. A long walk to freedom. Freedom is coming tomorrow. Get ready, mama, prepare for your freedom. Black man, you're on your own, baba. Nevertheless, after hanging around my group of sycophants for about two weeks, I was losing ground and I had to do something to show them that I was worth keeping around. So, at our next lecture, I decided to flex a little. You know, small fish, big pond delusions. Shakespeare, mwah, I got this. And as the lecturer goes into, my love is as a fever, longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease. And as he spews one line after another, I gather up all the courage I can and seemingly calmly complete the sonnet with, who art as dark as hell, as black as night. Glory, hallelujah, as I let myself bask in the joy of being right. Yeah, for all of ten seconds before dark bottle C accent rumbles, who art as black as hell, as dark as night, actually. He bound me to him with the sound of his voice. I walk out of the lecture determined to spend the afternoon recovering from the humiliation. And before I can, someone grabs my hand at the door then. Sharp intake of breath, stomach drops, pelvis pulls and... Owing flutter. Oliver, not Ollie. Psh, yeah, like tumble, twist. I knew for sure I'd watched it play itself out on Cuck Bob TV channels since I was six years old, right before Inzinuiz and Zizwa and the Crime Channel. 5.30pm in our household was signalled by all the women in my family putting down their brooms, scrap laps and feather dusters. They exchanged these weapons of war for cups of choco tea. That golden hour was when all the women in my family were willing to suspend the one, the one belief that they held above all. Men are idiots. Yo, we watched as Caravello and Gaou's love affair played itself out like a nightmare. My cousins and I couldn't understand why Ben Lekosi and Lillian fought so much. Why didn't Caravello and Lillian dump them and go off together? They lesbians! <laughs> Yeah, I was well versed in the language of love when we are free. We are free. We are free.
level. to hide them from him for the getting to know you stage of our relationship but eventually there came a point where he couldn't understand certain things like why I always insisted on facing him directly wouldn't let him draw me into crying that dance hall oh I took such pains to hide them even taking on Joburg's dirt heat in March with a heavy jacket that just made sure that he never saw me reach for anything. It made for crazy dates, cause to him, it was him and me. And to me, it was him and me and the game of hide and seek with the Freaky League stockers on my back. The first time that we kissed, I burst into tears. From the moment that my bottom lip landed between his and I licked the aftertaste of Chappie. I was snatched. Imagine a love so ferocious that it won't let you rest even when you're down to your bones. WhatsApps at 2am, we both swore we were insomniac, but actually I was definitely a heavier and a reliable sleeper. It's just soon after I met Oliver, I couldn't sleep anymore. We did everything he wanted to do and I found things he did enchanting, so I was happy as fuck. I even learned how to play chess. I gave no downs about losing each time because it meant he would kiss me. Oh shit, I was in love. My body burned for him and I wanted him to do to me what I'd figured out with my index finger. So it was just a matter of time before desire trumped my shame. Anyway, so one afternoon we got back to his digs after linguistics and I'm wearing the jacket with the white dress so I look kind of cute and we turn on the radio and lo and behold I hear, Yo! Why you like to make me feel my life is never real? Before I know it, I'm back on all my baby stoop with my cousins and Tolo. Relante, lo gonna have a nice A cloud of fabric in the air as he pulls up at my dress and I pull down at his feeler pants. Like I said, I've never been comfortable with bodies, but that afternoon I took to that body like a duck takes to water. Do you know swans have a whole choreographed mating dance thing before they make love? First, they check each other out from afar, then if there's a connection, they lower their wings and start dipping their necks. Then one swan will drape their neck over the other swan's neck before they start to... <laughs> yeah, then... The... Then the need to pee overwhelmed me and I pushed myself up. I only realised my mistake when he asked, Nana, what's on your back? I was the most naked I'd ever been in my whole entire life and I didn't have the strength to lie, so I just offered him the scraps about it that I knew. You know you can just get them fixed, right? Obvs, 
Prince Siegfried had a family doctor. Face down on Wilson's spine table. Abdomen loose. Ventilation. General anesthesia and preoperative intravenous antibiotics. Arm on the operative side in the horizontal plane while padded arm board. Extreme support. Spine, neck, arm, trunk, posterior, superior, iliac for bone grafting. Incision. A long incision along the medial border of the scapula, through skin, through subcutaneous tissue, small fenestration in the trapezius fascia, just inferior to the lateral aspect of the scapular spine. Adjacent rib levels exposed. Electrocautery, towel clip, elevation. Rhomboids detached from medial scapula. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth ribs exposed. Exposed ribs slightly decorticated, looped 18 gauge wire threaded under each rib. Wire cut at a loop. 4.5 millimeter reconstruction plate contoured to fit. Three drill holes over ribs four, five, six. Two wires passed through rib four, through plate. Repeat for ribs five and six. Spine, neck, arm, trunk, posterior, superior, iliac for bone grafting. Bone graft from under ribs, underexposed scapula. Wires tightened to compress between bone. Elevated bone falling back into position. Soft tissue coverage over hardware. Wound closed in layers. Subcuticular stitch on the skin. Sterile dressing. My eyes are closed. I realize my back is flat against the white, white linen of the hospital bed. My wings are gone. For the first time ever, I miss my mother. But to ban basalibalokum polla for a kemun to the gumme. What about man teba? Mara oma ma baby. Oma ma baby and anasalibalokum polla for me. Men untat. Apparently, she only stopped crying when she began to feel the flutter of my wings in her belly. When I became a butternut, she would chase the smell of rain. Waking up during thunderstorms, she'd pull back her blankets as quietly as she could and sneak out of the front door. Lit intermittently by flashes of lightning, she'd run to the dust clearing at the back of the house, tilt her head back, arms wide, legs in second position, and release the strained sound of her womb out into the felt, into the hills of Mokharing. Inside her, I sang and danced and stretched into my skin in resonance. When her voice was spent, she would lie on the dust, 
eyes and belly to the moon and let the smell of the rain on red earth lull her to sleep. Young boys off to milk the cows to start the day always found her lying in that clearing at sunrise, covered in dust, dressed crinkly and damp. She glistened at nine months, her stomach the shape and size of a watermelon. They say she was most radiant then, that I had mended her broken heart from the inside. <laughs> then, the egg hatched and the ugly duckling was born. Look, I know my mother loved me, but I do often wonder if she understood that on the night that she lay besides the bird cages, she was in love, yes, but that the creature she was making would tear her from within with its wings. So I had them bound. While the scars on my back were reddening and healing, Oliver and I were nesting. I'd lie next to him at night, flat on my back, and fantasize about that operation slice for slice. I didn't mind that I'd let them cut me open and wire them down because in doing so, they'd made more space in me for him. That procedure was my trade-off with whatever thing sits up there on top of the clouds for, well, us. Anyhow, it takes about four to five weeks for the bones to fuse and we spent a lot of time in bed. I wasn't in pain, per se. Besides, I had Oliver supporting me the whole way. He made endless cups of tea, read long passages from Wuthering Heights for me, carried one arm after the other patiently while they were changing my breast. In fact, he supported my arms so much I didn't even notice when he let go of my hand. The meat's gone off. The smells crawled up my nose and I imagine I begin to feel my wings flap. Electricity's finished, so the fridge has gone off and many things have died. Joburg's Gakhart saw many bar fridge has let the mince turn to brown sludge and the chicken into slime. Dead meat. He's just going to get some electricity. <laughs> He's taking a while. I am a little worried, but the phone's died, and of course I have no way of charging. I have everything I need. After the first week passed, his toothbrush started taunting me in the dull, humming emptiness. Dull as a butter knife. Scraping together nothing. I'm used to it now, the nothing. So I just stopped. All of it. Stopped looking out there, hoping to catch a glimpse of his red beanie. Stopped physical therapy. Stopped bothering. Chewing is a chore, so I stopped that. Lucky he bought so many tins of soup. No chewing required. This is exactly where he'll find me because this is where he left me. And swans mate for life. And I am a swan. Ginna, the swan princess. <laughs> Chin up.
neck unfurled, plume rich. I stretch forward towards the blue, that's where he is. My body follows my neck and I start to forward, 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 pitter patter, gaining momentum. My plume flares, throat opens, a rush of air escapes the bottom of my belly. <laughs> my wings unfold. Gang swan is puka. The reading of the play is directed by Ilana Siliers and performed by Bushlegaba with composition by Ilana Siliers. We caught up with writer Bushlegaba, who is a multi-award winning South African actor, writer and speaker. She studied acting and contemporary performance at Rhodes University and processes of performance at the University of Leeds. She performed in the world premiere of John Carney's play Missing at the Baxter Theatre in South Africa and went on to tour internationally with the production which earned her nominations for Best Supporting Actress for a Fleur du Cap Theatre Award as well as the Nalidi Theatre Award. In 2016, Buchler was awarded the Brett Gold Bursary with the opportunity to expand her knowledge and acting ability of Shakespeare at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It is during her time there that Bushley began to conceptualise and write her first place one song. Recently, she was nominated onto the Shakespeare Society of South Africa Executive Committee. In 2017, she won two South African Cannes Theatre Awards, including Best Upcoming Artist for her place one song. Bushley was nominated for a Fleur du Cap Theatre Award for Best Leading Actress for her performance in What Remains, a play by Nadia Davids and multi-award winning director Jay Partha. Ngaba was named as one of the Mail and Guardian's top 200 young South Africans and voted number one by the public in the Superbalist Top 100 Entrepreneur List both in 2016. A definitive list of young creatives redefining the future of creative culture and entrepreneurship, as well as acknowledged with the Gauteng Youth Premiers Award for Excellence. As an author of The Girl Without a Sound, Bushler seeks to promote diversity in children's literature and to develop the legacy of storytelling amongst the youth. Bushler recently localised the New Girl Code, an initiative of Inspiring 50, a non-profit initiative. Funds made with the book are used to support activities to increase diversity in STEM. In 2019, Bushler was invited to participate in the International Writing Programme Women's Creative Mentorship Project of University of Iowa, courtesy of the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, US Department. Bushler was recently awarded the Rising Light Award at the Mbokordo Awards for Women in the Arts. So, hi Bushler, it's so lovely to have you on our podcast one of the first things that we're asking our guests at the moment is we are called fizzy sherbet and one of the things we did when we started as the readings in at the hackney attic was we'd give each of our audience members a lemon sherbet to eat while they were watching the plays and we so we just thought to start off to ask you is there a sweet that you have with a story behind it oh yes in fact there is um, it's called uh, Wilson's Toffee. Um, South Africans will definitely know exactly which one I'm speaking about. It's an iconic brand. We know it. Um, I'm originally from the Northwest, um, and a lot of my writing and my storytelling is placed there. But um, by way of home, that sweet reminds me of home so much, and particularly the cola-flavored one, because when you got that one, you knew that something special was going to happen that afternoon. For me, it was a case of my grandfather was going to sit on the stoop, a stoop <laughs> being 
suppose you guys would call it a porch maybe mm-hmm. um and we'd all gather and sit and we talk and eat the wilson's toffee and it takes forever to get through it so yeah wilson's oh, toffee. Cool. very good i really want to try that Fantastic. oh i'm going to send it to you and you're going to have to send me a lemon sherbet absolutely yes. <laughs> That, we should be doing this with everyone, actually. That's a great idea. A sweet exchange. I think, uh, yeah, don't you think? Sweet exchange. Yeah. Yes. Very nice. So, Buche, your Swan Song is your first play. What was the inspiration behind the play and how did it all start? Sure. You know, you are both just going to have to, well, actually, bother everyone because I forget that there's a wide, wide audience now. So, firstly, hello, everybody. And thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm so excited to be joining these incredible women who are venturing during a time that we know that showing up is not easy, but creating this platform is doing exactly that. Um, my name is Bushen Gaba. Um, I just said, um, by way of pronunciation, everyone around the world, it means beautiful in Isizulu. Um, and I find that it really helps when you color a word with what it means. So for example, one of my favorite words is also puddle because it's so appropriate. So whenever you're confused, just know it's bullshit. But going back to Swan Song and its inception, I just wanted to say everyone is gonna have to give me a minute just because there are so many different lenses through which this play was born and it has so much history or rather history and so much DNA that I struggle often to answer when it was born because Mm. I feel like with creativity, when something finally is, um, and and I think what I mean by that is when you can share it with people and you can discuss it in this way and you have to trace back where it comes from, you start to find that it's taken you your entire life to finally get to this actual moment. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it's taken me three years to identify that this is a show about grief, about growing up, about breaking bones, about being the weirdo, <laughs> um, about being isolated, which is something that we can all identify with. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I come from a long line of women who, as I said, have told stories, but the line in the show where I say they used, um, they exchanged scrap laps, brooms and feather dusters. And they use these weapons of war, you know, they exchange mm-hmm. these cups of tea for weapons of war. No, they exchange these weapons of war for cups of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, is because, you know, I come from a long line of women who are storytellers, who are military veterans, who are mothers, who are leaders, who are fierce, but who have all, for me, passed. And so I think that from a very young age, I've always been obsessed with storytelling and legacy because for me, they're so closely intertwined because I've lost so much family that the one thing that we've all been able to hold onto and inherit is our stories. Mm-hmm. So one song is born because all of the women in my life, I think, um, my matriarchs have been fierce, insanely talented, crazy, very, very brave women with really, really loud voices in their own particular time. So what I managed to create in this character was actually just the essential of all of that. Mm. Much in the same way that I had been watching at the time, for example, Papa Esidu as Hamlet at the RAC, I got to watch a black Hamlet, but not only that, 
I got to hear what Hamlet was saying. And then I went, oh my gosh, this is actually a very long monologue where this young guy, this brother gets to talk on and on about his feelings, all about his sad feelings. I don't get the same opportunity. So I decided to write the same opportunity, to write mm-hmm. the opportunity, quite literally, you know. Mm-hmm. And our feelings are complex as women, you know. You can be sad and you can laugh and it can be a shit storm and you can remember something and then not want to and not be interested. You can walk around your flat in just your panties and your bra if you feel like it for as long as you need to without caring what time of day it is. I just wanted to give myself permission to grieve, I think mm-hmm. is essentially what I'm trying to get to mm-hmm. because I feel like we are not given the opportunity to do that. But to cut a long story short, once upon a time in 2016, I was awarded the Brett Golden Bursary where I did a residency at the RAC. I was the first um, woman of color to be awarded this bursary. It was also, you know, an absolute insane dream come true, but I was super intimidated about going to the RAC for obvious reasons. You know, I really assumed that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel so bizarre and it's going to be scary and I'm going to suck. (laughs) (laughs) That was the definite, I was just like, it is going to be a shit show and no one's going to be able to say my name and then they're not going to care to talk to me or to meet me, all of these things, you know, but, um, a few months before I was awarded the bursary, my um, great aunt, but by way of African tradition, let's say, of, or rather of how we raised one of my grandmothers, um, she passed on and she was the first female um, cadre of Umkondowe Sizwe, which is the, I suppose, liberation movement in South Africa from apartheid South Africa at the time something that can be spoken about and negotiated Mm. as is with all world politics right now until humans get themselves together and we Mm. take responsibility for our own shit. But anyway, she passed on and she was, you know, the matriarch of our family and watching my mother have to grieve our entire family and for her to be the only person left really made me look at grief even a step further because that's lineage, you know. And so then I was awarded the Bread Golden Bursary, but after having to sit through a state funeral, which in itself is a performance and incredibly painful and bizarre mm. and a fight history and history, because it's funny where women in history lie and who sees what does what and where and who's allowed is interesting. And so directly after that, I was in the R- at the RSC. My mom had just gone through her second bout of breast cancer um, I, another relationship of mine had ended, but on top of all of that, I was going through that 24 year old angst that we all do when we're losing friends, we don't know what is going on, things are changing. And I remember I woke up on one Sunday at the RSC, or rather at Tamara's guest house down the road. Tamara, <laughs> I love you, I'll promote you forever when you're in Stratford, head on over there. <laughs> um, I was really down that day. Um, and I couldn't find any rehearsal rooms open, but I was like, no, this is the RSC. I know somewhere's open. I have an access card. I'm going to use this thing. I did not travel across the world to not find a space. And I found the Ashcroft rehearsal room and I walked right up to the top and it's this tiny attic and it overlooks, you know, the river Avon. 
mm. and there were swans there and I was just like oh my gosh I'm this black South African girl in the middle of Stratford I walk past a whole lot of white people every single day who are so excited about Shakespeare's house I can see that they've literally there's an entire town built on top of archives you know um I had discovered in my grandmother's um, garage at the time after she passed, Julius Caesar translated by Salt Blakey in 1957, which is Julius Caesar translated into Setswana oh. in 1957, which is pre-Bantu education mm-hmm. in South Africa. So that completely, I, I, it threw me and I went, oh my gosh, why would Salt Blakey care about Shakespeare? which then made me go, so why should I care about Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Beyond being an actor or beyond being privileged enough to go to a school where you can learn all of what the right answers are for the exam at the end of the year so that you can get a very good mark, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there, I, was, I felt isolated, I felt weird and I, start, and I started to think about my family and my lineage and all of the things that it's taken for me to create me and then I got to start to writing this character who was crying in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, what would a swan in Africa look like? What does that mean, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's absurd that I'm there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that I get to be like, Judy Dench was once on the stage. Mm-hmm. And one day there will be a little British girl who'll be like, Pushankaba <laughs> was once on the stage. Absolutely. You know? The world is getting that small. One, I mean, one thing that struck me in the piece itself is is the allusions that it makes um, to other pieces of literature. Um, so you yes. so you talk about the Shakespeare and you talk about what the Wuthering yes. Heights gets a mention. I'm just wondering, like, yes. what uh, what was behind some of those specific choices? Oh, you know, I, I think um, thank you so much. And I'd, at, at this point, I'd also just like to say I think this is why being isolated as artists is so difficult because as I said, we lose connection and that's mm-hmm. what becomes so difficult and that's negotiating now. So for example, what I started off with at the RSC, you know, um, is not what it is now, mm-hmm. but what it was when I started performing it in a container um, three years ago is also not what it is now, but also the, um, radio drama now you know is also mm-hmm. not what the screenplay was that mm-hmm. we saw a month ago mm-hmm. um, yeah. and I think that's what's been so amazing about this time is I feel like finally all of the resources that because I've had to work with whatever it is that I've had mm. but it's turned out to be a great gift to me now because those are all the shining gems and jewels because that is all you have at the end of it all, you know? If all you can do is sit in front of a fire or with a candle and tell a story, then you do just have access to what it is that you have, you know, essentially. Mm-hmm. And But as artists, it's a real gift when you get to meet other artists who help you excavate certain things. So Ilana, for example, is one of those people for me. Because what I came back with from the RSC, she was like, I was like, okay, I think I want to write a play. I'm here. I've got it. I've started it. I get the structure. I know her heartbeat. I know what needs to happen. And also, it's called Swan Song. So you know what? We know there's that <laughs> and I, there's real freedom in that you know what I mean I'm not keeping it a secret mm. you're watching you decide and also you decide whether there's death or whether there's freedom you decide I don't know if she dies or doesn't die I don't answer that question in the text because I don't think it's necessary I think that we all get to decide for ourselves I digress 
Ilana was the person who said to me, okay, cool, but what is all of this tangibly? What does it look like? What does it sound like? What is the problem? What does she, what, how does she speak? Then I would have to go home and write all of that. And then she would work with that. And then she'd be like, okay, cool. I hear that. But now I feel like I'm missing something at this point. And then I'd, then I'd have to find the space and the rhythm to go and find the next entry point. But that's a, that's a relationship with great trust, you know? You develop it. Because as a writer, I have to trust that whoever the first person is that's going to read this, who is now my director, you know, that's a very vulnerable position. But it's insane because Elana affirmed a lot of what I was writing and a lot of what I was writing is not something that I'd ever heard or seen before. I've never seen a solo black Setswana young character stand in panties and a bra and speak about her life and not speak about anything in particular but speak about everything at the same time mm -hmm. <laughs> and to just be caught in a moment much in the same way as we don't we wait for hamlet to talk don't we we wait for hamlet to finish and so i wanted to create a character that you would have to wait for those full stops too and that has to be enough and the silences have to be enough. But anyway, so then I would find that Ilana would get really excited about those things that I felt like didn't fit together. Because as I said, I've never, I'd never witnessed them before. But for example, after my grandmother passed, finding Julius Gesara, Julius Caesar in Setswana, that and that Salt Blakey had translated it pre-Bantu education in South Africa made me question, okay, but why and how? But then that means that literally on my grandfather and my grandmother's shelf, by the time in 1937, this is on their shelves in Daung or in Khanyesa or Tabeng, which are all tiny villages in the Northwest province of South Africa, which are relatively forgotten places. Mm. But that means that we had these books. They are there. That, that blew my mind. I was like, because I understand that they're there when I'm at school, let's say. But to me, it always felt like I was outside of them. They had nothing to do with me. Yeah. Suddenly, to imagine them in my family's homes, no matter, no matter where, whether that be in a tiny one-room, tiny house in a township that my great-grandmother had to keep building because she was dispossessed of all of her cattle because she was a woman after my great-great-grandfather passed away, you know, or whether it be in Cape Town in my mother's home after she's had to work so hard to create another space for us, you know. Mm -hmm. But to understand that all of these things can exist was wild to me. So Wuthering Heights is another one. One of my great great aunts it's her book you know Wuthering Heights from something ridiculous like 1932 but the point is it was on our syllabus mm -hmm. so to pretend that uh, no I just I just refuse to believe that we, do, we haven't had all of the access to these things or at least been able to glimpse them and see them and comment on them and feel on them and I feel like as soon as you can do that you you can very proudly say no i don't like macbeth <laughs> because i've known i've been knowing macbeth also since 1937 by way of osmosis within my family's legacy so i am allowed to you know mm. if that's how i feel in the same way that i can be like one day i hope i get to play lady macbeth on that rsc stage you know and may Ian McKellen please come through and be the person that 
voice trains us or whatever, you know. I'm just saying that um, all of these things, I love them because I think that they're a great, um, I don't even want to use the word equalizer because I don't think it's necessary. But as you said, you know, our culture is rich mm -hmm. and it's not rich because of these things. It's rich beyond all of them. We've been knowing them and playing with them and turning them around for ages. Mm -hmm. Our language is rich, you know, so much in the same way, as I said, that I got to see that, yo, if the entire town of Stratford burns down, Shakespeare's folios are going to be saved. At home, I'm going, sure, there are a lot of writers whose work, you know, Sabata Mokai, who's this incredible Sitswana translator, no, not even translator, writer is what he is, but he chose to, after going to Iowa on the IWP writer's residency, you know, he chose to start writing primarily in Sitswana. He just chose to because he decided there is a market, there is an audience, and guess what? He was right. That's mm. wild to me, you know? Mm. So at the moment, for example, I'm working with an incredible director, Neil Coppen, and a filmmaker who I worked with also on Swan Song, Matt Griffiths, on Hamlet in Sitswana, where I will be playing Hamlet. Um, nice. The time for it is now. Mm. Um, am I not a child grieving her mother? Mm, mm, and my absolutely. time and for me, matriarchs have raised and pulled my family through it all. And now my sister and I suddenly find ourselves at the helm of that. So if ever there was a time, it has to be now. Mm. So it will be to be or not to be, but it will be, you know, um, <laughs> and to be able to know that I'm going to be able to access the world with that is also amazing because at the end of the day, if we know the story, we know the story. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Papa. Thank you very much. <laughs> I want to see your Hamlet, Michele. I really want to see Don't worry, she's landing soon. She's Great. landing soon. You, you mentioned so many things in there I would like to like pick up on one of the things so I'd really like to talk to you about is because you mentioned your process with Ilana which uh, sounds like a really wonderful work relationship and I saw the film of Swan Song that you made for the Virtual National Arts Festival and yes. um, I thought it was absolutely incredible and it's so lovely that the two of you have now made the audio version what's for you what yes. is or has it been the difference for the two of you working on the film and then on the audio version has there been any differences or what what's it been like working in these two different mediums it's been you um this is such a lame answer but it's the truth i'm sorry everybody it's been very different but very much the same yeah. So what I mean by that is that um, I think you touched on something very important there. It is about your working relationship with people you know. Um, and I think that Ilana and I have developed a shorthand. Um, and it's something that I hold very dear. And it's very precious because the point is I am a black woman who is looking to add to a, a, a canon of writing that is incredibly important. So who I surround myself with, you know, or who I work with is incredibly important to me because it's not about me. It's about something so much bigger than me. Mm -hmm. So you can be sure that Ilana and I, sure, we are both very fierce people. But what's been incredible is to be able to have that kind of trust and that kind of love where when she comes and she asks me about something, I know it's because it's for the work. It's for its heartbeat. It's never self-serving and to leave complete room, you know, for it to be the story that it is. It's incredible. 
so to be able to do that, it just means that we've been able to fight, we've been able to make up, we've been in a container together, but before then, we've built a lot of sets and carried them across the country because she's an incredible actor also, and we met, you know, while I was at university and she was working for a theater company that I then joined. So I'd been on the floor with Ilana before, so I knew her work ethic. So I knew we could work together because we could make magic. I mean, this was literally born initially, sure, Ashcroft rehearsal room, but then it grew and had its next few steps in a container with one light, which means that in my mind, I had already began to think three years ago, okay, what would it be like to turn this into a film in some way? Just because my audience was literally on top of me. I, I always speak about how there was one particular performance where at the end, you know, I looked down and I saw that my tampon string was hanging out. <laughs> and I told Lana this and she just laughed and she said, well, you know what? they came into her world. What do you want? What do you want? What do you expect? Like, it is what it is. She gets her period. Yes, that's what it is, you know? And so that sort of intimacy made me start to wonder about the intimacy of what um, the language might mean, how it might translate through film. And then I got the great privilege of working with Nikki Pilkington, who is one of the filmmakers on the film, who also edited it, who is a beast and is incredible. And shout out to a Wonder Woman also, because she's also um, somebody who's looking at exactly that language of theatricality within cinema, how we how we keep all of that and lose nothing while still growing forward. Because I think that it's really important for me to note that like, this is a huge deal for me also because I'm not the first person fine to put theater onto film. It's also not in South Africa, can I just say, definitely not, but it's about the flavor with which you do it and the attitude with which you do it and the voice through which you do it. And I think that that's what's made this special because the point is everyone needs to understand that we don't have national theater live here. It doesn't work that way, you know? It's not just something that we get. So the filmmakers who worked on this, Matt Griffiths, Nikki Pilkington, who had a vision for this after seeing it in her tiny bedroom where we had to socially distance ourselves because we are now in COVID, but we understood that she can't put something onto screen if she hasn't even seen it. Having to work with my director, Ilana, who is on another province right now, mm. you know, so I'm not gonna be able to see her having met Matt Griffiths in the oncology department with our mothers, I also understood that then I could trust his lens in a very particular way because if you're tapping into grief, then you're tapping into grief and that's not something that you can ignore. And I knew that in that way, it's something that people are going to be able to watch for a very long time, whereas in the theater, it's transient, which is what's so special. But to figure out a way to translate that, to feel that in the screen screenplay was super important. And so now for the radio drama, for the audio, I think that what's special about that is that we're doing pretty much the same thing, except now we're working with sound. But thankfully, Elana's done her master's in sound, and sound has always played an incredibly important element of the show and its telling from its inception. So as I said, in the container, for example, we had two JBLs, one directly under me by the tins in the corner, <laughs> and another at the back behind the stacks of chairs that we put at the back of the container to create raped seating <laughs> for 20 people. She understood that she always wanted everyone to feel like we were on a lake consistently. Mm. Or, you know, the score tells its own story. And that is Ilana, you know. So this 
the screenplay gave us an opportunity to play with that even further, but the audio gives us an opportunity to take that even that much further. Mm-hmm. So I'm really interested to, maybe I'm going to ask people to sit in a dark room, put on your <laughs> speakers, you know, yeah. um, just listen. Um, it's 22 minutes long and then come back. And can I encourage people by the time this comes out, I'm really excited because there's going to be a filter fizzy sherbet audiences. So after you've listened to it, get onto Instagram and go use the adapt or fly filter. Let's Ooh. just keep doing it. See Very how far nice. we can go all around the world. Let's do it. I love that. I love that it's grown even into a filter, like this ever evolving thing. It just has its life of its own, it seems, just kind of beyond I you all. Can't. But that's because I also, that's something that I try and teach my students, as I said, resources. Is it not in some way maybe a little, let's call it homage to that very fancy gift shop at the RAC, you know, where you get to buy posters and, you know, erasers and pencils <laughs> and stuff, you know? Like, I, I, I want us to support artists the whole way through. Like, and I'm ready for that movement and I'm, and I'm ready to try and bet on myself because I want other people to bet on themselves too, you know. Mm-hmm. I do it patently and boldly because if I don't, when are we going to take steps forward? Unfortunately, we are the ones that have to do it. And that's really stressful because I always thought that we were going to be the generation that kind of died doing nothing. Apparently not. Step up. I mean, I feel like there's, there's a, a thousand questions I'd love to ask you about your process, but I am really struck by what you're saying just now about kind of boldly stepping into positions of power as a woman and kind of claiming what's yours. And it's, I mean, it's kind of undeniable that your biography is amazing and you've, you know, you've won a heap of awards. You've been part of some incredible schemes. You've, uh, you've been listed as entrepreneur of the year, I think, for The Guardian or something like that. Like, you know, like these amazing, these amazing things. really and I just wondered has any one of these commendations really meant a lot to you and how do you Mm -hmm. talk to other women about kind of I don't know get getting the platforms that they need and deserve you know I think that it would be really terrible of me to pretend that these you know those accolades mean nothing because and what I mean by that is I could be like oh yeah they just sort of happened Mm. and uh, airy fairy Mm. about it flip that would be really disrespectful and terrible to myself because they've been hard earned and the blood sweat and tears and all of as i've said all of the women in the family that's passed before me no there's just been too much blood you know and what they have i don't know sorry it's such a difficult thing to answer just because on one hand i understand that it's so ridiculous. I'm going to use Beyonce here because it's the only way. Beyonce has this really great story where she speaks about how, you know, when they were 10 years old and then when they entered, I don't know, some talent search or whatever, it's before the flawless music video, you know, when it's like girls time. Mm-hmm. And she speaks about how they'd rehearsed for so long and they'd done all of the things and you ticked it and you know, you've rehearsed, you've written it, you've produced it, you've put all of your money into it. You literally have given it everything and then you still lose. It can happen, you know, and that realization is shocking. And I think that as a black woman, 
you realize more often more often than not you are going to lose and that sucks mm. and that realization is terribly painful but it's also incredibly liberating because what it starts to do is for me for example i decided okay cool i am not <laughs> i don't seem to be getting the roles that i really want but that's also because then i started to realize but do they actually exist you know am i hearing them you know within my right here then i realized flip i have to pick up a pen and i always say that's when i became dangerous all of a sudden you know <laughs> it's funny they like a woman when she's good at doing the things you know performing mm-hmm. um being told what to do as soon as you pick up a pen and you're the one placing the words in your own mouth people are less excited mm-hmm. um and the awards don't they don't do anything necessarily for the work but what they do do is they lead you to your next opportunity mm-hmm. and it would be a lie to pretend that they're not important for that reason do i think that i would be speaking to you in this way if i hadn't gone to the royal shakespeare company 4 years ago not entirely sure and that's mm-hmm. the truth of that you know mm-hmm. and one's got to know that um which is why then i understand that when i do get these opportunities i run with them and i'm scared at all times but i have to trust you know i have to trust that people are going to be willing to watch a screenplay with a whole sitzwana monologue in it and not be entirely sure they understand what it means but i know they know what it means mm-hmm. i have to trust that i know you know if you're mm-hmm. feeling it you're feeling it you know and and with the audio that's something that i've also had to consider for example i've been like okay do i translate the sitzwana into english and i've chosen not to just because i'm going maybe i can speak to people about let me write i will do a translation of that particular monologue then that i will make accessible via my site and you as the audience member will take it upon yourself if you mm. would like to mm-hmm. to go and find Yeah. much in the same way that me or other um sitzwana speaking spanish speaking who knows <laughs> or mandarin speaking persons around the world who have to reach you know for english mm-hmm. as the apparent language of greatness and that means that you are something then other people must also reach I don't know what I mean and I don't know if I answered the question No because- no I I I I mean I I I feel I know what you mean from that yeah this <laughs> kind of like, <laughs> And I and I actually think what you're saying about saying you know like they know I'm going to say it in Setswana but they will know they will know what exactly. I mean Yeah Exactly Yeah because if, part if of it is if we're in the story mm, but then yeah. that also speaks back to my incredible relationship and working relationship with Ilana for example mm. who herself is not sitswana speaking mm. but had received a sitswana monologue from a sitswana speaking writer who happens to also be her actor ilana didn't turn to me and go no i don't know what this means she was just like okay cool what she's saying here and then ilana holds me accountable to that mm. i don't get on to stage for example and suddenly change the monologue no ilana comes back to me and goes no that's not what she says doesn't she say oh mama bibianantat a whole white african speaking south african woman comes and says that to me and holds me responsible and accountable 
as the writer. Mm. That's what I hope for. Those mm. are the relationships that I hope to grow. And that to me is honesty mm. and a way for us to really then be meeting, um, not just in the middle, but quite frankly, where we need to be meeting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I feel like we could just talk for hours and hours and hours before it would just, it would be amazing. But we, we do, unfortunately, we have to. Of them all, everyone's like, wow. <laughs> Um, we, we do, we do, you know, unfortunately we have to, we have to wrap it up soonish, but, but, um, we would, what we're asking everybody is what's interesting women in the arts or otherwise you're inspired by at the moment. And you've already named so many, but if you would like to name any more, then this is your time. Okay, Nicole, I love you. I'll (laughs) add me back. I'm out here. I'm ready. Whenever you're ready, I'm here. Um, other than her, um, or alongside, um, mm. sure, so many. Nadia Davids, who is a incredible playwright slash writer. Who else? Koleka Putuma, Amira Conrad, who's actually in London at the moment, working, I know. Um, whoo, I'm under so much pressure at the moment, just because, I don't mm. know, there's so many. I just feel like my peers are doing really incredible things, and mm-hmm. I'm shook and I'm excited for where it is that we're going. Mm-hmm. Um, Jabu Newman is another one who you must keep your ears and eyes peeled for. Um, Lady Scully is an incredible artist and a friend of mine who I have a great amount of respect for her work. Laura Vinfogel, Fame Projects, the work that they're doing in South Africa also, you know, by way of teaching all of us, quite frankly, about everything that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a lot of non-binary people who I am just in complete awe of who are sharing their journeys and doing incredible things. Zoe Black, I love you. Gabriel, Lauren, um, <laughs> Lindy Wessettle, who's just recently released Coconut Confidential via YouTube. Go and subscribe. Amazing. A million more. Yeah. I love you all. You're incredible. And also just to everyone who might be listening and wanting to do something and is unsure of it, listen, no one's going to come and give you permission. I promise you. Unfortunately, you're not going to run into Steve McQueen on your way to go do the grocery (laughs) right now. Um, It's just not going to happen. But Mm. maybe just maybe someone is going to, you know, listen to a podcast, catch a glimpse of something on YouTube, find your essay on Google on your weird blog that you thought no one was paying attention to. Use your resources, just because we can't all hold hands directly right now. I'm telling you, it's an open platform. It's a free for all. The establishments are falling. Thank God, let's create better new ones. Yes, amazing. Oh. No, Bushla, I mean, that's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you today. Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> I'm excited. One day we will do this over a lot of wine, a lot of margaritas and a lot of tequila, lemon sherbets and Wilson's puffs. <laughs> I'm ready. Absolutely. Yeah. Will you please let us know when your Hamlet's on? Without a doubt. You know it. Brilliant. Definitely. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much Bye. 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 South African director Ilana Sillias tells us why she chose to direct Swan Song. When Bushe, um approached me about directing Swan Song with her. I think neither of us were quite sure what it would be at all. 
we had some material and um, a lot of the subject matter would only emerge later. So I think neither of us were quite sure what it is that we were going into. I was not very confident as a director at all then. I had done some directing, but always with a sort of specific purpose. And here, in a sense, we were making something from nothing between the two of us. Not nothing. I mean, there was, there was, some, there was a, a central metaphor. But it was really wonderful because I think I got to explore with um, in the style that I do like working in and, and put a lot of my own sort of creative voice into it. Work by working closely a lot um, with Bushe on as she was developing the script, and it really did help me establish my creative voice. I think I've used headlamps three times now. That was the second time, but it it helped me establish these sort of mix between theatre and almost performance arty elements where uh, images are made live on stage and that's sort of a style thing that has remained in my work and yeah it's it gave it I, I'm so proud of the thing that we've created in all its various incarnations and how it's grown and changed and sort of just gone from strength to strength We've been sitting with this character and this piece um, for such a long time and it's so wonderful to see how it develops. And as I say, it's given me opportunities to develop as an artist on many fronts, including my sound and my composing. So a very um, rewarding experience. It's also really wonderful for me to be a part of seeing how... Butler herself, but Butler through this character also has been connecting um, with so many people and how this work has been so inspiring for a lot of people um, in a much bigger way than I ever would have imagined. And it's really touching to see that and to have been a part of it. So I'm really grateful for Butler for <laughs> roping me in <laughs> at the early stages. <laughs> Our special guest today is Naledi Majola, a Cape Town-based actor on stage and screen, as well as a performance maker and sound designer. She creates live artworks engaging with blackness, drawing from and in dialogue with history. Her artistic practice is defined by a DIY approach and decisive uncertainty. Bouchlet and Naledi are frequent collaborators with a deep admiration for each other's work. Josephine was stuck in a yurt deep in the Hereford Forest when we recorded this interview, so our other lovely host Tamara took over. The lady, it's so lovely to have you on the program. So, as you know, we're called Fizzy Sherbet. So, just to kick off this interview, we'd like to ask you if there's any sweet that brings up a story for you. Oh my goodness! Well, I mean, I guess because you've said Sherbet, it kind of just clicks for me. I don't know if this is in other countries, but for us in South Africa, where I grew up, during break in primary school, we'd go to the tuck shop and get like these little packets of sherbet and they were like in a little black bag and I think it was called sippy sherbet or something and there's like a lollipop that like comes with it so you like dip it in the sherbet and you like suck on the lollipop or whatever yeah that's like one thing that comes to my mind and the packaging is so clear to me I think it was like a little black packet and then the writing on it was like chalk on a blackboard and yeah it was just like that classic thing and they were like really like fizzy and like sour and you'd always be like I'm in pain but this is so delicious um yeah I don't know <laughs> that's why it's brilliant I haven't had it in years though but yeah 
So Nalidi, you are an actor, performance maker and sound designer. And I was really interested in your process and how you work. And I always find it really interesting when artists work in very different but similar fields. And I was just really interested in how those creative hats fit together, how they influence each other. So what does your like work life look like? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm still like really figuring it out because I am only in my third year of working professionally. Uh, so I finished dra at drama school um, at the end of 2017 and then have just been trying to work it out ever since. But yeah, I trained as an actor specifically, like as a theater actor. And it was only when I reached sort of the very end of my time studying as an actor that I decided to also step into making, specifically, I guess you could say sort of live art or performance art type of work. And then the sound work also just sort of came on a whim where I was working on a piece, on my own piece um, in 2018, and then had an idea of what I wanted it to sound like, but couldn't, didn't have the resources to get someone to do it for me, or like, you know, couldn't afford the rights to the type of music I wanted. So I sort of started making that myself. So it's sort of born out of necessity. And I mean, I'm very much a rookie in every area, but I think what connects it is the fact that for me, I believe that the type of story you want to tell or the type of idea you want to explore, it should dictate the medium that you work in. So I don't believe that you should like box yourself in and be like, I'm a dancer and I make dance and that's all. Because you might come across a story or come across a concept which you really love, which maybe doesn't work in that medium of dance, but works in another way. And I think for me, it's really just been about learning different skills to facilitate the kinds of ideas that I want to explore in my work. Yes, that's, that's really interesting. And you mentioned sound and sort of creating your own um, soundscapes. I was also wondering about music. How important is music for you and how do you integrate it into your process, not just as a maker, but also as an audience member? Mm. Well, yeah, I, I really love that you asked that because music for me is just like fundamental just to existence, not just <laughs> like in the art sense. So I find that the things that influence me and the things that sort of inspire me a lot creatively actually comes from musicians, which is a bit weird. Like it's not necessarily that I have like a favorite theater director or whatever. Like for me, it all comes from music. And I think the kinds of musicians I like are people who are quite interdisciplinary in their approach as musicians. So a strong example for me is a South African artist named Nakane. He's done amazing work in South Africa, um, recently moved to the UK and is also doing really, really awesome stuff out there. And he is an incredible singer, an incredible guitarist, an incredible pianist, but also is an author and has written the most incredible book which, where he weaves in lines from his music into the book, is an incredible actor, basically sort of just fully encompasses everything through the art and the music just as this through line. And yeah, I think for me, I mean, definitely as an actor, I, I do sit down and make playlists for my characters and sort of try to like get inside that thing because I just feel that's my access point to humanity is through music. 
Um, so it's, it's easier for me to, yeah, get into a character's like mindset or emotional landscape through that. We'd love to talk to you a bit about your work with Büchler. And I saw that the two of you performed together in the all-female cast of The Taming of the Shrew, which sounded really brilliant. So was that when you first started working together or how did your relationship start? Yes, that production was where we first met. So that was in 2018. Up until that point, I had obviously heard of her because she'd been rising and been doing amazing stuff. My first like actual actual encounter of seeing her was it must have been like 2014, I think, which was my first year of university. And she was performing in a production called Missing, directed by Janice Honeyman, written by Dr. John Ghani. And we had to go watch this play, like as part of our first year degree. So we had to like write an essay on it or whatever. So that was my first time seeing her on stage like in this production with the biggest legends of South African theater and I was just like how did how did this person get there like how does that even work but yeah I had constantly been hearing about her when she released her book The Girl Without a Sound I was again like who is this person how what is she doing how is this happening when she got the Brett Golden Bursary to go to the RSC, I was again like, what is happening? So it was just this thing of like this person you've always heard of. And I guess I'd built this very big image in my mind of like this like star. So then finding out that I'm cast with her in my first professional job, I'm like uh, in a Shakespeare. And now in my mind, this is the queen of Shakespeare. Like it's all happening. Um, <laughs> and then meeting her and being like, okay, you are all of those like amazing things that I have in my mind. You are all of these images, but you're also like a human and you're a person. And I'm very thankful to now say also my friend and like someone I can just call and not like this mystical godlike being, even though that's what she also is. Yeah. Are you collaborating on other projects with her in the future? Is there anything else that's coming up? Yeah, so that is an interesting one and a very big one. Yeah, sorry, it's it's a it's a tale. Um, we <laughs> are currently in a thing that we're working on together, but it's yeah, it has a it has a long history. So essentially, when we'd been working on taming of the shrew together, we'd been talking about research and performances research and just like thoughts and academia and all those kind of things and somehow in that conversation she'd gotten the idea that she should introduce me to her mother who at that point was starting a PhD in politics at the university currently known as Rhodes. So she introduced me to her mother sort of because her mom had been looking for just a sort of assistant for her throughout this research process and so, yeah, she introduced me to her mum, Cindy Ngaba, and we started working together. I was literally just the person who took care of whatever admin was happening within that process. And then eventually, as it went on, I was transcribing interviews that she'd been conducting for her fieldwork. And in a nutshell, what this PhD project was on was on Aunt Cindy's aunt, who is... Dr. Ruth Mompati, who was a anti-apartheid ANC struggle person <laughs> involved in the struggle. And I believe she was one of the first people 
the first woman sent overseas to train as part of the ANC's move into armed struggle in the 60s. So yeah, this was a big person who I think isn't necessarily known by a lot of, I definitely didn't learn about her in school. So I think part of that project was about looking at her leadership within the ANC and within the anti-apartheid struggle and theorizing around it in a way that has been done for many male struggle heroes over the years. So, and Cindy was doing that work. So yeah, I was kind of involved there. And then in December last year, she passed away. And yeah, um, I mean, Bute also was very deeply involved in the process. And quite soon after she was speaking about the continuation of it. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot, you know, to kind of jump to right now. But in retrospect, I understand that this project isn't just about an academic project and isn't just about, you know, a PhD. Like this project held, held and holds deep significance for them as a family. And yeah, so yeah, Bouche's kind of taken it on to see how it can be seen through to its end. What format it will come out into, there's different options, but essentially we're, we're still in, in that process and figuring out how to continue this theorization around this person and their work. And yeah, just working it out, trying to find funding, and yeah, so it's, it's, I guess it's a different thing. We, I'm sure there will be a creative component to it as well, but we don't know what that is yet, but it is happening and it is ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing and fascinating. That sounds like a really, a really interesting project and I look forward to hearing how it developed. We've been speaking to Bouchler and she was talking about her family and the matriarchy and the line of uh, women in her family and it just sound, they just sounded all absolutely breathtaking and brilliant. And um, she was also yeah. talking about Swan Song and how for her it's also about grief. And I do think Swan Song is an incredibly striking uh, piece of writing and performance. I saw it as the, the film version in the mm. virtual arts festival. But you've seen more of her work and I'd be really intrigued. What is it that excites you or what is the thing that's really striking, do you think? If you were to describe the work, I mean, it might just, this might be a really hard thing to describe. Obviously, it's really hard to describe any body's per work in yeah. like a nutshell or anything. But what is it that sort of resonates with you? What is it that excites you? Oh, no, this is like an easy one. <laughs> um, because it like genuinely excites me. I think, first of all, I think it's going back to what I was saying earlier that my favorite kinds of artists are the people who work expansively across mediums and for whom the medium is determined by what they want to say. And I think Bukhe is exemplary of that because, I mean, she's done all kinds of things. She is this writer. She is this actor. She is the theater maker. She is an author. She is an educator. And first and foremost for me, it's the fact that like, she works across all of these different mediums and areas, but it's all coming from the same central core and the same central purpose, which I love. I think what I really love about what she does, I think it, it shows very powerfully in Swan Song and in The Girl Without a Sound and in projects, other projects that she's done, is that she's not 
she's not just doing this. I don't know if this is a bit of a like iffy thing to say, but I think that as we continue to discuss representation in the arts and in media, I think sometimes the trap we fall into is like representation for representation's sake. So it's a thing of like, oh, there's a black person there, representation done, cool, we won, yeah, we did the right thing. But I think sometimes what lacks is that we lack the specificity and the nuance of that black character. So it's like a pat on the back to have a black person there to show that you're being diverse but you're kind of using them as like a placeholder for all of black humanity. And you're not really delving into the specifics of that black person who's not just a representative of the body, but they are a specific person. And that's what I enjoy about what Bukhe does is that she adds such a specificity and a nuance to the image of a black woman. And for me, that's like doing the real work, the deep work of representation, the hard work to really create detailed, three-dimensional, specific Black characters. Because like, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, if for whatever reason they were going to stage Swan Song, but it wasn't going to be Bukhe acting in it, and we had to cast someone to act in it, it's not just about finding a Black woman to come and play this character. It needs to be a Black woman who can speak the language of Setswana, which, you know, isn't the largest indigenous language in Africa, so in South Africa, excuse me. So you have to find someone who can speak this language. You have to find someone who can dance on point. Like, this isn't a, a casting situation of, oh, we just need a black face in this thing. Like, we need a specific black actor who can speak the specific language and has the specific skill. And I think that that's important because it's sending the message that there is a lot to us. And yeah, I'm just, I'm really excited about the fact that it, a lot of it is coming from her and a lot of it is personal. And like I said, very specific, but then at the same time, you are able to relate to it on a broader level. And there is for me, definitely a feeling of, I feel seen, you know, even though I could never play that character because I have never worn point shoes in my life. <laughs> so it's maybe not mine in that sense, but it is mine in the sense that, yeah, maybe I'm contradicting myself a little by saying I don't want this sort of placeholder for all of Black people. I want the specificity, which is there. But then I also can't help but relate because of the specificity, because of the references that she uses in the piece they're very specific to a certain um time and like a time of growing up yeah she has like a, a like a there's the scene where she's doing the sort of hand puppets in like a television soap opera style and that's a very specific thing to like growing up in south africa and the fact that in South Africa, like a lot of our media is to an extent still segregated. So there's a specific channel, SABC, SABC One, which you know that like most black families, that's what they're watching growing up. So that parody of that soap opera style is something that we know and something that we grew up watching and 
when you see that on screen, you have that identification. And I think she's very clever about the types of references that she uses. Another one, again, in Swan Song that's so fantastic for me is there's the scene where she has the song Free by Lebu Matosa playing and has like a little dance thing, oh, I wanna be free. That is like, ugh, it's so epic because the singer of that song, Lebu Matosa, she was like a huge, huge symbol, I think, for like women's sexual freedom and ownership of their bodies and ownership of their work from the 90s into the early 2000s. And she was, you know, considered controversial for some of like her outfits and how she danced and stuff. But for me, for, well, not for me, because I was very young, but like in retrospect, you know, I'd heard those songs growing up and then you get old enough to like actually look back on who this person was and what they stood for. And you're just like, this is an icon. And so to have her like placing these little breadcrumbs of these like pop cultural references in the work, it not only, you know, gives you that thing of like identification and familiarity and nostalgia, but I think what it also does really well is that any younger people who are watching then get to be like, wait, what was that song? Like, let me look back and then learn about Lebu Matosa, learn about her feminism, learn about like just the awesome stuff she was doing. So I think there is also like in a round, well not a roundabout way, but there is like an educational aspect to it, which I think again, like just relates to what Butle does, which excites me, like the work she does with young people in like teaching them Shakespeare and like coaching Shakespeare. I know she's done for university students and for high school kids. And again, it's that thing of saying like, you can access this and you are capable of accessing this and we can do this in your language and it can be real for you and it can be a story that makes sense to you and it's not just for people over there like it's for us who are right here but yeah i just overall i think it's that thing of everything being connected and yeah just really being rooted in just the specificity of who we are and that's actually that there we go full circle that is actually what makes it relatable is the specificity not just the thing of this is a black woman character so everyone relate to her we don't just relate to her because of the face and because of what we see we relate to her because of the details about her even though we do come from different backgrounds or we speak different languages i i just i connect to you because i see you as a fully human character uh yeah and i think that's but, what she does yeah i agree and and i think it also goes deeper than that you relate to the character because the character is so rooted and so specific so mm. that goes across i mean internationally as well so reading it we related to the characters as well and yeah. i was wondering as you know this podcast and fizzy sherbet is intended as a platform for women writers and directors with an international outlook and we're really trying to balance having conversations that highlight the strengths but also the challenges that women in theater face in different countries could you tell us a little bit about the strengths but also the challenges you have faced working as an actor and sound designer in cape town mm. yeah i think I mean, one of the strengths I've mentioned before, and I think it is very specific to like my life and stuff. So I can't say that it's the case for everybody here, but one of the strengths for me is just the community 
that I have mm -hmm. and the fact that there are people I can fall back on and the fact that we do, you know, work together to lift one another up, you know, whether you need someone to take photos for you or whatever, like you just know who to call. And that's really lucky. And I know that not everybody has that, but that's something that has really just kept me going because obviously it can be difficult and disappointing even at this early stage. So yeah, that's great. I think one of the difficulties is just the fact that, and I think sometimes we forget it, like Cape Town and the, the art scene here is very small. And there's only so many opportunities actually going around. But there's so many people who, you know, are working for those opportunities and fighting for those opportunities, but there's only so much that goes around. And that can be difficult because, I don't know, you might compare to like other cities, especially internationally, it seems like there's a lot going on all the time. But here it is difficult, funding is difficult. There's only so many slots. There's only so many briefs coming through. There's only so much. Of course, the immediate like answer to that is make your own work, make your own work, which is true. And that has been, you know, a source of experience for me and stuff like that. But even in making your own work, there's a whole other host of things that comes with it, the funding and the whatnot and on and on and on. But yeah, I think, I think a lot of my difficulties are really just linked to having just started out and I suppose more personal things like how to stay motivated and, you know, being conscious of the fact that it is a long term game and that you're not going to like score right at the beginning. And yeah, I think, I think the thing that keeps me sort of focused is obviously like just trying to stay connected to why I do the thing, but also just looking to, the people who've gone before me and I mean not to like make her sound like an ancestor but like Wutle is someone like that who sort of has gone you know ahead I mean she's like five years older than me and is constantly like showering me <laughs> with advice and one-liners and wisdom and reminds me of the fact that like it's it's gonna be hard for a long time <laughs> and it still is but I think um, what you're saying is really important by it is it is that isn't it as a creative to surround yourself with collaborators and creatives who inspire you who can collaborate with you and who sort of bring a whole sort of variety of possibilities on the collaboration yeah. front so that is that is part of it isn't it because we're not we work best with other people definitely definitely and I think just making your own work like that's been so empowering for me it, just in terms of representing what I think and representing how I see myself and how I see the world because you're not necessarily you know on the acting side going to get a brief that says exactly what you want to see reflected in the world you're not going to get that every week so I think it's important to put that out into the world yourself in whatever way you can and create those characters and create those stories and, and, and whatnot that expresses what you want to see expressed on the stages. Yeah, so that's something that's really, I think, important to me and has been quite empowering and has played a part in 
sustaining me through this, even though it's been a short time, it has, you know, kept me going. It's just knowing that I can express what I want to express as well. One last question maybe to ask is, we're asking this question to everyone we're interviewing, which is, are there any women in the arts or otherwise who you are inspired by at the moment? Okay, yeah, like right, well, not even right now, like for a while, a person who I find really inspiring and who I think has just, has got like incredible vision for South Africa and for the arts and just in general is um, Lisuwu Siabe. She is an actress. She is a voice artist, an academic and an educator. And for a while when I was studying, she was one of my lecturers. And I mean, just as a performer, she is just incredible. She's incredibly enigmatic. And she honestly has a voice that can do things which I don't understand. Like just a vivid, incredible voice. But what she's, the project that she's doing right now, I think is so, so incredible and just exemplary of the vision she has. She's working on a project called Victory of the Word um, in collaboration with Ati Patraruga, who is, yeah, also just an incredible artist. And yeah, I think one of just the best South African artists of all time. Um, so they're working on a project called Victory of the Word to basically save the Lovedale Press, which is an almost 200 years old publishing press in South Africa. It was the first place to print and publish novels in indigenous South African languages. And it has yeah, just published the most prolific black writers in South Africa of all time. But it is like on the brink of collapse and it has been for many, many years. There are three people left working there who own the press, but they have no resources. I think to the point of having issues with electricity and water, the actual publications there are not stored in the, it's just, it's just really bad. And they're working on this initiative to raise funds for short-term, medium-term and long-term needs. But I think kind of the crux of their project is this preservation of this literature and this preservation of this idea and ethos that like writing in indigenous languages has been happening. And the only way for it to continue happening is that if we preserve this heritage and this legacy and like move it forward. So again, just to see someone like her along with Ati just having this vision and wanting to do something big and significant that will have generational impact for black writers in South Africa, I think is amazing and inspiring in the sense that like it might seem impossible or it might seem like hectic but someone has to do the work and that's kind of like this was energy like I can be a very doubtful person and I just I don't know I remember a conversation we, we, we had where she was just like but you have to do it like there's no argue like you just have to do the work so yeah that's someone and I think Wutley embodies that as well you just have to do the work Anna Lily it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and to hearing about your work and your thoughts on Boucher's work as well. It's been fantastic. So thank you so much for coming onto our podcast pilot season. Thank you so <laughs> uh, much for our, uh, It's our second episode. This is our second episode. So this is a uh, very <laughs> times to have. And just because also it's just wonderful to be chatting over Zoom to three different countries, which is just yeah. a pleasure right now. 
So it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's like, yeah, it's such a privilege. And thank you for listening to the many words that come out of my mouth. <laughs> really important <laughs> words that come out of your mouth. <laughs> so, no, really, it's been, it's been a real pleasure. And I hope to hear of the future projects. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish with intro music by Jane Dixon. Next week, we'll be listening to the play Blackbird Hour by the amazing Babillier Bukilwa and talking to Babillier and her special guest, Maya Jeffers. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.